From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Friday podcast, Sans Adam. Zach, what do you think? How are we going to do it? <laughs> we, we've done this a few times before. It's not that's like true, uh, our first adventure uh, without Adam. But, you know, <laughs> we, we, we know... He's off having a wonderful time with Naomi and Esty in Greece, uh, yes. seeing some lovely pictures, eating looks like some good food, mm-hmm. drinking some wine, you know, doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll look forward to having him back in what feels like a long time, but probably when it rolls around, it will feel like it was just a brief moment of, of no Adam. But uh, yeah, I don't know. How are you handling it? I feel like, you know, obviously Adam is a bigger part of your day-to-day than mine. It's true. It's been, it's been a, you know, what, it's been like one week so far, but... I already miss him. No. Yeah. Fair enough. We'll, we'll make do. Yeah. We'll check back in on that uh, every few yeah. weeks. Just, just see how we're <laughs> feeling what our Adam Teeter uh, you know, sort of longing status is. Yes. Um, so uh, what have you been reading, Zach? Yeah, so I think one of the things that crossed the site recently that I was interested in, because again, kind of a topic that I find interesting, even though it's not it's not quite as far out of my wheelhouse as shoe collaborations, but still mm-hmm. kind of a, a category of drinks that I enjoy, but only occasionally and don't think about a lot, was a recent play, a piece from, and hopefully you can tell me whether, I, Shanna? Shanna Clark? I think Shana Clark, yeah. Shana Clark. Mm-hmm. My apologies, Shanna. And if we got that <laughs> wrong, our apologies. Yes. <laughs> uh, about sort of attempts to boost sake sales here in the United States. And part of that is a thing I was aware of, which is basically sake is you know, declining in popularity pretty dramatically in Japan and has been superseded by a lot of other beverage alcohol options in some cases. And as a result, sake producers have you know always looked to the export market to some extent, but I think see the United States and other external markets as being, in some cases, kind of necessary for survival. And I think about this because, you know, my relationship with sake, such as it is, has always been one of like, you know, I have sake when I get go get sushi or similar food and enjoy it. And I just then don't think about it. And I feel bad saying that. I mean, especially as a beverage professional, but it's just kind of true. And I think that that to me was the most interesting thing here about the conversation in, you know, kind of as relates to sake. And one of them is about how Americans relate to Japanese sake and the other is about domestically produced sake, mm-hmm. a category that I will freely admit I've only sampled a couple of times and know very little about, but do recognize that you know there's no clear and obvious reason why domestic sake can't be exceptional. I know there's a, a highly regarded producer in Oregon uh, whose sake I have tasted and I'm forgetting their name. I think they are mentioned in the piece, in fact, but I don't know. It just... Even though I like it, even though I've enjoyed it almost every time I've had it, it just, I don't know what it is that where it just hasn't kind of gone beyond that to me. I don't know. Do you drink sake with any regularity, Joanna? No, not really. You know, we've talked about this before, and I I want to say that you said sake is a place where you want to learn more. Like, you know so much about wine. Obviously, it's very vast, but sake is also just one of those categories where there's so much, there's so much nuance to it, and there's so much to learn about it. Mm-hmm. Um, that you had expressed an interest in doing that, but no, I, I mean, I can't, I can't say, I can't say that I, I drink it often. I've had some domestically produced sake, um, the Brooklyn Kura one that's mentioned in the piece as well. 
that I think is very good. But yeah, I think we could all we could all stand to learn a little bit more about it. Yeah, I think to me, if I were to be straightforward about one of the complicating factors for me too, is that, I mean, there are, you know, I know sort of the baseline about kind of how different types of sake are sort of organized and maybe some of the flavor differences, but a lot of the more com- the complexities and the nuances do feel kind of daunting to dive into. And that may just be that I don't have as much, you know, obviously don't have very much experience with it. So it feels overwhelming in the way that I'm sure that wine or anything can will feel overwhelming to people who don't have much experience, whether personal or professional. The other piece of it, though, I think is that there's something about the sort of way that sake presents like as a drink in the way that you, um, the way that it literally kind of interacts with your sense of taste and your palate and stuff like that, that to me is like often a little bit like, I really like it, but it's, but the finish on sake is so often very delicate Mm. that it feels to me that like, whereas with wine, which obviously is a vast category and there certainly are wines that would not be great companions to lots of food in a variety of ways, you know, sake maybe suffers in, at least in my opinion, from being sort of particularly well suited to one kind of cuisine that Americans love, but not to a seemingly not to a whole host of other cuisines that are a little bit more substantial, require a beverage that maybe stands up more clearly in those settings. And again, happy to be proven wrong. Sake aficionados, producers, etc. Write in podcast at vinepar.com. Yes. Tell me I'm a moron. That's <laughs> fine. You know, someone's got it with Adam not here. So please <laughs> let us. But anyhow, Joanna, what have, what have you been, you know, particularly enjoying on the site? Yeah, another piece that we published this week um, was by Aaron Goldfarb on uh, kind of the rise of Weller bourbon as the ultimate tater bait, tater bourbon. Um, And I thought that piece was so interesting because it kind of takes a look at how we got to this place and what precipitated something that was uh, like kind of a humble uh, liquor store shelf bourbon, very easy to get, um, and turned it into kind of impossible to find. Um, and I thought that piece was really interesting because we're, you know, in this very specific moment with bourbon and, uh, have been seeing this quite a bit. And Weller recently came out with a new expression called Daniel Weller. And, uh, and that had a lot of people talking on, on the interweb. So, um, that, that was the piece that kind of, you know, I found pretty amusing this week. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And that whole, I mean, Weller, as you said, is, and as Aaron wrote, is kind of the, or example of this, of this sort of, I don't know, trend is maybe the wrong way to put it, but just this kind of occasional occurrence in, in bourbon where this distillery or brand line or, or even individual bottling goes from being kind of like, yeah, it's like, you know, go buy a bottle of Weller anywhere. It's like, fine, not incredible right. to like, holy shit, you can't find it anywhere. And it's, you know, five, you know, 10 times the, you know, the MSRP and all that stuff. And yeah, I don't, it was a good read. Definitely interesting. And, and I, I find the, you know, as the piece kind of starts out, there's just this, you, you see this lens into how like the internet and the ability of people of the taters to organize and to kind of find form communities has driven so much of this both, you know, kind of 
explosion in price and also the kind of like weird rolling backlash that comes from that. Yes. You know, it's kind of this weird milieu of like, on the one hand, must go buy that bottle at the same time, you know, under my other screen name, like one screen name, I'm posting my bottle shot and the next one I'm yeah. like, well, or sucks, you're all yeah. chumps. And I think there's a <laughs> lot of that going on in that community. Yeah. I thought it was he he kind of in examining when this happened, he mentioned um, like an episode of Bourdain's show and how he said like Weller was the ultimate bourbon or whatever. And I thought that was so fascinating because I I didn't, you know, didn't know of it, obviously, but it's interesting how that could have been a part of uh, kind of its trajectory. Yeah, that would be a fascinating thing to talk about sometime. I'm not sure exactly how we would organize it. We'll have to brainstorm outside of the podcast episode. But, you know, we've talked on on this show, and it's obviously been said a number of times, the sort of ways in which pop culture comments or things from, you know, famous people end up creating or destroying trends. Mm-hmm. And that that's so interesting to think about the extent to which, I mean, like, you know, obviously Anthony Bourdain was a very talented you know, or a talented chef and obviously a very good sort of ambassador for food. I don't know that I would have considered him a whiskey connoisseur. Right. And so it's <laughs> funny to me that in a way that that comment might have carried so much weight given his kind of like, you know. Expertise. Yeah. Or or perhaps lack thereof. I'm sure right, he's drank. Right. He drank plenty of whiskey, I am certain. But <laughs> that does not in and of itself make you an expert. Yeah. Do you want to get us into this week's topic? Sure, sure. So, you know, one thing, and I want to be kind of upfront about this uh some of you who are more in the uh beverage alcohol world might might think this is in response to any particular thing that has been written recently on say a different site it's not swear joanna and i plan this in advance (laughs) but we were sort of struck by and interested in talking about pet nats and in particular sort of the ongoing challenge slash evolution that the categories have is having and Part of it is, as we've talked about on the pod a few times in the last six months or a year, as the sort of natural wine movement category, et cetera, is undergoing its own set of kind of shakeouts and changing opinions and sort of rebrandings and reimaginings and all that stuff. Petnat, which is not in and of itself inherently natural wine, but is often produced by people who would consider themselves natural wine producers and fits kind of it's not directly into that movement is is was brought to prominence by that movement and is highly associated with it and may now be struggling in a variety of ways to sort of step out of the shadow of natural wine because as the backlash or just the you know wine zeitgeist has a little bit moved away from that the style of wine that is petit naturel is you know kind of at a weird crossroads. And so I think we want to talk a little bit about maybe where where we think Petnat is kind of I want to talk a little bit about why it specifically became so popular in mm-hmm. especially within you know the natural wine movement but even outside of that and then kind of like what we think will happen. So, you know, Joanna, can you maybe start by just when when did you when do you think you had your first Petnat? Ooh. I would say maybe 2015 okay i'd say kind of being in the food food world food like food media space and people who knew wine very well 
first probably first exposed to more natural style wines and something like a pet net. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's probably, you know, relatively early for even, yeah. I mean, maybe not for someone in food media, but for, for most people, I was going to say, you know, in that range, 13, 14, 15 is when, you know, they started kind of popping up here and there. And yeah. there are producers who are kind of touting it. But even in my, you know, my experience sort of in those early days, it was really like, a, oh, this is kind of like a fun little one-off that we're doing. Like a winery that I would know in Washington would make one because it was kind of like a fun thing to do. And it was, especially if they didn't produce other kinds of sparkling wine, it was kind of an easier way for a winery to make a wine that was effervescent. A sparkling wine was continuing to become more popular. True. You know, it was just a, in the same way that a decade prior, most wineries were like, well, we should probably make a rosé, even if we're not going to like focus on rosé, but everyone wants rosé. So let's make rosé. You'd be by the mid to late 2010s, you had people saying like, well, maybe we should make Petnat because it's right. not not to say that it's easy to make, but you don't need special equipment in the way that you do to make a more traditional method sparkling wines or just mm -hmm. anything that's disgorged or big tanks to make it in the like Charmant method, et cetera. So it's just easier on a winery that's not a sparkling wine focused winery to do. And it was very on trend. But were you seeing it? I, I can't remember if I was seeing it on like wine lists. Or no, back then. Definitely. I mean, maybe again in the like, you know, in the really kind of natural, early natural wine bars. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure you were. But I think it was not something that was being, you know, I, I remember pouring it like at some wine dinners and like special events as kind of a, like a here's a fun thing that you probably haven't tried kind of right. mm -hmm. move. It was definitely not something that was going to be by the glass, certainly in the kind of restaurants that I was working in or working around. And yeah, it was like a, it was a fun kind of like, you know, you, you, you just kind of grab the bottle and you, you know, I mean, it's still kind of the way it's perceived. And, and I think as we get into why it's maybe having a challenging moment or at least at a crossroads, some of this stuff that was it's kind of where it's selling points are now perhaps working a little bit against it. But one yeah. of them was that kind of like, it was, you know, perceived as very fun and approachable and sort of straightforward, simple, pleasurable wine. And, you know, that's a great fit for like, a, hey, we're having a picnic or, hey, come over and hang out in my backyard. It's not always a great fit for a restaurant wine list. Right. And more affordable probably yes. back then, too. Well, again, yeah, I think it's kind of like, again, not to draw too many parallels with rosé, but it's a lot of what happened to rosé as well, right? Rosé <laughs> was seen early on as a thing that wineries were producing, especially domestically, because it was often, you know, they were making it as a, you know, byproduct in one way or another of red wine production. So it was not really adding to their cost meaningfully. And it was believed that to be competitive in the market, you had to be, you know, $15 retail or something like that. Otherwise, you just weren't going to get in. Mm -hmm. And as Rosé became more popular, and there proved to be an appetite for $20, $25, $30 bottles of Rosé, not, you know, many of which or more, many of which were from, you know, prestige regions in France. But, you know, producers here were like, well, wait a second. We're a prestige winery. Why are we making an $18 rosé? Why don't we make a $32 rosé? And I think the same thing a little bit has happened with Petnat. As the category got more popular, as you had people walking into wine shops being like, hey, what do you have? What Petnats do you have? As opposed yeah. to five years prior where people were like walking in and the person at the shop was like, hey, have you ever tried a Petnat? And people were like, yeah. A pet, what? What are you? You know, like that's just—it's <laughs> naturally going to create some incentive for people to continue to push price up, especially as certain pet nets became more and more popular. Yeah, and so, so I guess we saw over the last then, ten, like approaching ten years, kind of the rise in popularity of pet 
maybe it's not a popularity, but definitely more people knowing of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we wanted to talk about how, like for me, pet nap is kind of inextricably linked to natural wine. And I know that that's not really supposed to be the case, right? Like yeah. pet nat is a very old, <laughs> old style of wine. Uh, the ones that are made properly are clean, right? They're disgorged. But I think a lot of what we're seeing now um, and a lot of that has been produced over the last couple of years because of its rise in popularity is kind of taking on a different shape. Yeah. And that to me is kind of its issue, right? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is just driven by oversaturation in the marketplace to some yeah. extent. And in particular with, let's say, versions of widely varying quality. I mean, again, you run into this issue that has, as you said, plagued natural wine in general, which is like mm, variable quality and not just variable quality, but like with a product like this, where for those of you who aren't familiar, and I guess we should spend one moment just kind of explaining yeah. the yeah. production methodology. So, you know, one way or another, basically you are with, with pet nats, you are sealing the bottle before fermentation is fully finished. So what's producing the carbon dioxide, the bubbles in the wine is the finishing fermentation and thus, you know, the capture. And you can either, you know, some are disgorged of, I'd say a, a decent number of them are not filtered or in any way. So they're, they can be cloudy or have sediment in them. And the truth of that is, is that, you know, a, each individual bottle is you're gonna have more bottle variation because each bottle is finishing fermentation individually. It's not in the case of most um, other sparkling wine where the firm, initial sort of alcoholic fermentation is happening in larger vessels, whether they're bo- uh, barrels or tanks, the wine is being blended and then bottled and taken through a secondary fermentation to gain effervescence, pardon me, effervescence, which hopefully hopefully should not affect the flavor all that much. And so you're getting, just bottle to bottle variation on a level that for a lot of people is, let's say, at least feels risky, if not outright uh, kind of undesirable. I mean, again, this is a thing for restaurants. It's one of the one of the many reasons why I was not interested in glass pouring mm. any wines like that, because you just it's hard to know, you know, if there's a lot of variation bottle to bottle. Well, what happens if the bottle you open is just not very good, right? Like that's a problem at the table, no matter whether it's a wine on the list by the bottle or by the glass, because you as a restaurant have to, you know, take that loss, or you have to try and get compensated by your distributor, which like, maybe they're going to help you with, maybe they're not, depends on how much it happens, you know, in the end, it just kind of creates a, a lot of problems. And I think that's part of what people have been seeing. I think the other piece of it is, and I want to get into this, because I think this is really relevant too. Mm-hmm. we already have seen, you know, preceding the pet nap, the surge in popularity, or at least surge in recognition, you know, we already had a sparkling wine kind of breakout star in Prosecco over the last couple of decades. Yeah. And Prosecco, in a way like Pet Nat, was able to succeed because it defined itself in some sense as the cheaper, more fun, more kind of everyday alternative to champagne. And the problem as I see it is that A, Pet Nat's kind of variability its unpredictability and the sort of valence of snobbery that's come with it Mm. have in a way limited its potential audience. Whereas Prosecco is like, 
you know, there are people who are snobby about Prosecco in the sense they're like, ugh, Prosecco. But if you are a Prosecco, <laughs> like, no one is like, you don't know enough about wine to drink Prosecco. Yeah. And I think Patnat, in a lot of cases, has, because of its close association with natural wine and because of the way that it has been largely lumped in as a part of the natural wine movement, means that if you're not down with the natural wine brand of snobbery, like, are you really going to get excited about these wines? Are you going to stay excited about the wines? I don't think so. I mean, I think that's kind of what we're seeing. I also think the last piece of it is, is that the lack of any kind of defined style is a challenge as well. Yeah. Like when it's just a production. I mean, imagine if, I mean, obviously Prosecco has expanded its style by adding Rosé Prosecco. Rose, yeah. But imagine if Prosecco was something that we saw in every shade of color made from dozens of different kinds or hundreds of kinds of grapes with wildly varying flavor profiles. Like people would sort of be like, so it's just sparkling wine. And I think of any kind. And I think that's the other thing for Petna that's been hard is like, it ranges so widely. And I think when we talk about tasting stuff in a little bit, we'll see this because I think we'll probably be tasting fairly different wines. Like when the only thing unifying them is a very sort of broad production methodology, it's kind of like, it's like just saying like you like wine. Sure. Yeah. Cool. I do too. Yeah. And I think that that kind of inconsistency, I guess, for lack of a better word throughout the category is the reason why it can never go mainstream in a way that Prosecco has. Mm -hmm. And I think I shared this on the podcast when it happened, but I went to a place uh, for brunch and they were serving uh, mimosas with Petnat and it was disgusting. And (laughs) I was like, why would you do this? But, but I, I don't know. I use like kind of my parents and their generation as a barometer for this type of stuff. And I, I just could never ever see them drinking Petnat. Um, for all of the reasons you mentioned, um, but also because I think the a lot of the ones that we're seeing now also have this like more challenging palette to it that kind of makes it as a category, yeah, a little unapproachable. And that might I, I think that's kind of like probably incorrect because I'm sure not all of them are like this, but sure. I do think a lot of them are, and that's yeah. kind of another you know, hurdle for Petnat as a category. Yeah, I mean, I think, as with many categories of wine, there's obviously a range and there are, you know, Petnats that are perhaps more approachable and there are some that are less. Again, you know, like you said, the the challenge is in a way that you don't know going in what you're going to get. I think the last thing I was going to say about this is that it's in, in some sense to me unfortunate that some of this has happened to the style and to the category, because I do think that there's a real place for this kind of sparkling wine in the sparkling wine landscape. I think it can do interesting things with interesting varieties, you know, in some cases can show a little bit more varietal character than sparkling wines that are taken through a more kind of elaborate production method, the champagne method or whatever, where you're getting a flavor profile that's built some out of the still wine and some out of the sort of lees aging and all of that. And, you know, I don't think pet that's going away. I think it will continue to be somewhat popular. I think we might see some, you know, just kind of a little bit of retrenchment from some of these yes. producers. I think, yeah. you know, there are some people who have really built, they've built businesses, they've built, you know, whether they're wineries, bars, retail shops, pretty heavily around, you know, if not exclusively pet nap, then with a sort of it as a 
tentpole category and that may or may not persist. And I think, you know, you pointed out one of the, I think the key reasons, right? Which is in any setting, that's not a wine shop. Part of the value of having a wine by the glass, a sparkling wine by the glass is a kind of versatility. And if you can't use it for cocktails, like be that a mimosa, French 75, whatever, it becomes harder to have it on the list because that's just a natural synergy that you need to have within your wine program where any bottle of sparkling wine that's opened has a lot of possible end destinations. Obviously, poured by the glass is great, but you need to be able to say, okay, well, we open this bottle and we're going to pour through it either by the glass or it's going to go into cocktails or both. Hmm. And with a, you know, and again, it's maybe not as big a deal if that pet nat or that other wine is very inexpensive. But when you're starting to talk about these wines that are touching 25, 30, 40, you know, $35 retail, therefore probably coming in at, you know, 15 to 25 wholesale, roughly, that's a pretty steep price point for something that isn't versatile in that way, but doesn't carry the champagne sort yeah. of luxury connotation, right? Like that's the problem. We haven't really talked directly about this, but to bring back Prosecco again, it's one of the challenges that higher end Proseccos that are out there, I promise, have faced is like people kind of go like, well, I like Prosecco great when it's my you know, 12 or $13 yeah. glass of sparkling wine when I'm out or it's my $16 bottle that I buy for home. Do I love it enough to spend $30 a bottle, $35 a bottle on it? Well, I mean, that's almost like what I can get a bottle of champagne, champagne for and for a lot of drinkers. If they're going to spend that much money on sparkling wine, they want to be spending it on champagne. Yeah. Well, I'd like to drink this now. Okay, so Joanna, what what pet nat do you have? I have Channing Daughters Bianco pet nat. It's a white blend of Tokai Friuliano. Friuliano. Oh, sorry, help me with this. Tokai Friuliano. Yes, Friuliano. Thirty uh, percent Pinot Grigio, ten percent Sauvignon Blanc. And where's it from? Channing Daughters. Oh, but I mean, like, where? I don't know. Oh, I'm so Channing sorry. Daughters? Uh, Channing Daughters is in on Long Island oh, okay. in Bridgehampton. Gotcha. So your neck of the woods. My neck of the woods. Nice. And what do you have? So I, too, have something from my neck of the woods. I have a pet nat made from Semillon from Grosgrain, uh, which is out in Walla Walla. Uh, rel- I mean, they're not that new anymore, I guess. They've probably been around about a decade. But uh, one of the first producers in Washington that I became aware of that was really not like focused specifically on pet nap, but like made their pet nats a kind of core part of what they were, how they were trying to kind of get attention. So they make two, actually, they make this one uh, from Semillon and then they make another one from uh, Lemberger actually, or also it's also done sometimes Blafrankish, uh, but Lemberger out here. So, uh, <laughs> and both are quite good. I've had them both a couple of times. I have actually, this is the first time I've tried, this is the 2022. So I have not tried it before, but I'm going to right now. And yes. this is a good example of, of the thing, right? This is they retail this on their website for thirty bucks, so it's not a cheap bottle. Oh yeah, I think this one is. I think this is about the same. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Hmm. So this, I should also say too, that this one is disgorged, so it's not cloudy. I don't know. Is the Channing Daughters uh, disgorged? Yes. Yes, it is. It's also not cloudy. Gotcha. Cool. Well, yeah, this is, I mean, you know, this is very, like, I say this in, like, a funny way. It's, like, almost doesn't come across as super pet nat to me. Like, it's not very funky. It's very kind of clean and crisp. It's very pretty citrusy and apple-y. But, but it definitely Same. has a, like, lighter touch with the effervescence than a more traditional sparkling wine, which, again, maybe is a part of the, 
interesting thing about Petnat is like by nature they're not as effervescent, which I think maybe makes them appealing to people who are not like all in on sparkling wine, but does on the other hand kind of for some of us who like real kind of you know frothy wines, it's maybe like a little underwhelming in that regard sometimes. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I think another prop. This is very delicious as well. It is. It's um, very clean and. Um, a, a touch sweet, actually. Um, but Interesting. Really good. Um, also apple-y. But I think another thing with Petnat is that people, first of all, people don't know it or what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then also, yeah, what the drinking occasion is for it. That's a really good point, too, right? Yeah, it's not It's not like a celebratory it... sparkling yeah. wine. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a like... I heard the kids were drinking pet nats, so let's drink pet nat kind of wine yeah. sometimes. Yeah. This is good, though. Yeah. Let us know what you think of pet nat, if you've had it before. If you have favorites. If you have favorites. At oh, this is, I think, the last oh, thing yeah. we should say, too, because I, it's actually very relevant to this. So when we were planning for this, we were initially like, oh, we should maybe try and have the same wine. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting to note that for a variety of reasons, it's actually relatively hard for you and I to find the same pet nat. I mean, they are a few that have some national reach, mm-hmm. but it's a not exactly a local product in the sense that obviously a fair number of pet hats that are in the market are from Europe in certain places, but it's not, there isn't a, you know, it's not like if we were like, oh, let's try the same Prosecco. There are three dozen we could go find relatively yeah. easily. It is a different animal in that regard. And that's maybe also creates a challenge because it's not like a single brand can really either generate a lot of attention nation. Uh, you know, nationally or is inclined to like build the category as a whole the way that right. certain Prosecco brands have really built Prosecco as a whole, even if it doesn't always result in sales for them directly. Yeah, you're not going to find your favorite brand uh, at liquor stores or across the country. So no. Yeah. Well, Zach, this was a great chat. Yeah. Um, I'm going to finish this bottle. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> now I'm going to share it. In front of you. I'm going to share it with the team. Okay, good. Um, have a wonderful weekend, and I will talk to you on Monday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Shrino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.